everybody, and welcome to Bear in Mind, the official podcast of AZA's Bear Tag. My name is Emily, and I am so, so excited to be welcoming you all to the very first episode of the podcast. With this podcast, we're going to be able to connect you with valuable insights from members of the zoo community, as well as hearing about some of the incredible conservation and education work that's being done. Before we dive a little bit too deep, though, we're going to tell you a little bit about ourselves. Lisa, would you like to start? Sure. So like Emily said, my name is Lisa, and I am a conservation education liaison at the St. Louis Zoo. And that is a interesting position. It's an awesome position. It's not something that every zoo has. But basically what I do is I work for our education department, but I work very closely with a lot of our key animal care department groups and their keepers. And yeah, it's awesome position. I absolutely love it. And one of the teams that I am lucky enough to work with are our carnivore unit. And they are absolutely awesome people, absolutely awesome keepers. And they take care of our bears. And I got started in the zoo field a long time ago, 22 years ago to be exact, as an educator. But then I became a keeper for a few years after I got my degree and I worked with bears. And that was it for me, Emily. Like it was just like I worked with bears and that was it. I absolutely was head over heels in love with them. So even when I went back to education, bears have stayed with me ever since. And now I am the Bear Tag Education Advisor and am lucky enough to be able to work with you as our education specialist, Emily. Yeah, I'm so grateful that I get to work with you too. I feel like we make a really good team and I'm so excited for all the projects that we have coming up, like this podcast specifically. It's really, really exciting. And so a little bit about me. My name is Emily. I'm currently the program coordinator at Capron Park Zoo. So I'm a part of their education department and I help to schedule and book all the programs with schools and camps, as well as instruct them too. So I really get to work a lot with the public, which is really exciting. I love being able to teach out about zoos and animals and why they're so important and really creating that spark for visitors that come in, which is really exciting. And before this, I was at Roger Williams for a couple of years seasonally, working in their education department, doing some camp stuff, doing some research, and a little bit of animal care as well. So it's kind of been a little bit of everything, but I'm so, so excited to have joined the Bear Tag at the beginning of this year. And it's so exciting being able to work on those projects and really hone in on all things bear. Yeah, it is. And I know, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question, Emily, but we have to cover it because in the next episodes, we're going to be asking all of our special guests this question. And it's one of the hardest questions, Mm -hmm. truly. But do you have a favorite bear species or individual bear? Oh, gosh, you know, I feel like I would probably have to say sloth bears. If you asked me maybe like two months before, right? I would have Mm -hmm. said like moon bears like two months before, but Mm -hmm. the facility that I'm at now, Capron, we have this sloth bear named Vicky and she's just so, so wonderful. And they've actually had an entire like dynasty of sloth bears. So they've had grandparents, parents, and she's actually the grandchild of the original pair that they had back in the nineties. So it's just a really incredible full circle moment. And she herself is just so charismatic. So I love getting to be able to watch her and see her interact with her environment. That's awesome. And having that legacy, I bet, really helps connect the guests to Vicky and to that software story, I would think. That's yeah, so cool. absolutely. Yeah, we have this really cool like family tree graphic showing where nice. like who the grandparents were, where the kids are, where like the other grandkids are. It's really awesome because they're all across the country now at different zoos. So it's just very cool to see that legacy spread out across the country. Love that. Yeah. And what about you, Lisa? Do you have a favorite bear species? So 
Uh, there's two categories for me. One <laughs> is the bear species I most identify with, and mm -hmm. one is my favorite to have ever worked with. So the bear species I identify with the most is definitely the grizzly bear or brown bear. But the bear that I've loved working with the most are Andean bears. And yeah. I worked for a bear with a bear named Poncho. <laughs> and he was an Andean bear that we were both new. I was a new keeper and he was new to our zoo. And he stayed at our zoo once he got here his the rest of his entire life. And so mm -hmm. he was just a very, very special bear. The sweetest thing in the world. And I absolutely love working with him. And he's the reason like that I just completely fell in love with Andean bears. That's really amazing. I know that those individual connections to animals and to nature are really just so, so important for helping to ignite that spark and find that passion, especially for helping to save wildlife. And I'm sure that there are so many people in the zoo field who probably have stories similar to yours. And that's just so cool and shows how important those individual connections really are. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're so, so excited to be talking about bears with you all. But before we dive deeper into that, we're going to go a little bit wider and focus on zoos as a whole. And zoos have existed for a really, really long time, dating all the way back to around ancient Egypt. And here in the United States, zoos have existed since around the mid-1800s up until now. And I'm not quite sure, I know that it always goes back and forth about which zoo is the first. Each zoo has their own story, so I think it's the Philadelphia Zoo? Yeah, I know. The one I've always heard of is... The first has was has always been Philly Zoo, but you're right. Everybody kind of has their their timelines and when they were zoo or, or officially the zoo that they currently are. I mean, even at our zoo at the St. Louis mm -hmm. Zoo, we started well. Our first one of our habitats is a huge flight cage that dates back to the world's the 1904 World's Fair. Oh wow! But we didn't. Our zoological association didn't form until 1910. So we say we officially started in 1910. So we've always had what is now our Cypress Swamp exhibit, but it is a free flight area that we've had six years longer than 1910. So everybody kind of has those dates that they play with, right? Yeah. And I know back then the collection would consist of a pair of rabbits and a squirrel and they'd be like, wow, look at our zoo. And it's like, well, kind of. <laughs> But I think that really goes back to the fact that zoos back then had such different definitions than they do today. And, you know, the standards that we held them to are also so much different. And I think that a part of that, a really large part of that, is the fact that zoos were primarily seen as entertainment centers rather than, you know, centers for animal conservation and education. And, you know, back then, people weren't as connected to wildlife. And so a zoo would really be the only place that they could see some animals, whether it be, you know, a squirrel or a giraffe. And so fostering those connections in that community is super, super important. But because it was focused so much on the human side, that also led to some slip-ups in terms of animal welfare and well-being, as well as conservation. Right. And it's, it's a very interesting history because it's not, it's still relatively recent, but the way that we're able to look at it and the way that we're able to track how things have changed is really pretty incredible. And like you said, there are some things that zoos caught up with relatively quickly. And so even though we started as menageries and bringing in animals from the wild, you know, we were able to turn that into, okay, we don't really bring in animals from the wild anymore. Instead, we have this amazing cooperative breeding program and all of the well-being and welfare changes that, that zoos have made 
since, you know, just in the last 100 years. So that's pretty, a pretty quick turnaround, especially when it comes to the care of the animals. So yeah, I think that's something that we should definitely celebrate and expand upon. And we definitely will, obviously, with uh, the rest of the episodes. I know I own a couple of like zoo history books. I'm a little Mm -hmm. bit of like a fan of like, just like seeing like how everything changed, like you said, over like the past hundred and something years. And something that's so interesting is, you know, a lot of times the resources that we have available in terms of like research and husbandry requirements and everything like that just weren't available at the time. So for example, something that was super common back in like the twenties and thirties was feeding animals bread. A lot of animals from, you know, hippos to bears to really anything in between. Bread was a really, really big staple of their diet. They'd get like two to three loaves a day. And that was just based off of the knowledge that keepers and the curators had at the time. They thought that that was the best that they could provide for their animals. And obviously now we have animal nutritionists and different guidelines for that that we're able to set to make sure that animals are getting diets that mimic their nutritional needs as well as what they receive in the wild. But it's just really interesting being able to see that growth of knowledge and seeing how far zoos have come in that sense of being able to really learn as they go and taking the time to recognize, hey, we were wrong with that thing. Here's what we can do instead. Yeah, nutrition is a fantastic example. And the especially with nutrition, the amount of collaboration that goes Mm -hmm. into studying diets and making sure um, you can access the different types of food items Mm -hmm. and you can actually bring them in. But yeah, through universities, other zoos, there's just a ton of different collaboration that can go on with nutrition to make sure our animals are getting the most nutritious and nutritionally complete diets that that we could possibly give them. Yes. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that collaboration is really the key feature or secret ingredient that helps make zoos who they are today. And I think that back when zoos were seen as primarily forms of entertainment, you know, they were in constant competition with each other to get the most visitors and see who had the coolest animals or coolest experiences for visitors. And because of that, they were looking at it more in a solo mind frame instead of really as a team sport. And something really amazing about zoos today is that they're super open to collaborations and sharing that knowledge and information with each other. That way they can help further the field and make sure that their animals are getting the best possible care. Yeah, and I think that really that community aspect of the zoological world and the zoo institutions and the aquariums, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that really came to head with the foundation of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the creation and the foundation of Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And when you hear Emily and I talk about the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, we're going to call it AZA. And you're going to hear us talk in a lot of acronyms, both Mm -hmm. together (laughs) and with our guests. So we're going to do our best to make sure we spell out every acronym we can. Yes. um, Because there's a lot, there's a lot in the zoo world. I don't care what zoo you're at and the broader AZA community, there's a ton. So AZA is a huge acronym. You're going to hear us use a lot because the Association of Zoos and Aquariums when that was created, that really helped coalesce all of the the work and the research and the conservation, like all of these things that zoos were really starting to develop and pioneer and innovate. And it really helped us all get under this kind of the same roof or the same umbrella to pull these things together as well as the AZA is also an accreditation body. So we, to be accredited by the AZA, you have to meet certain standards and they often exceed kind of the standard USDA regulations and rules there. So it's, it's definitely the height of well-being and welfare for the animals that are in AZA zoos and aquariums. 
Yes, definitely. Thank you for bringing that point up about the acronyms. I totally would have forgot. So thank you. I know. I feel like we use them so much. It kind of yeah, becomes like secondhand. It's like a little yes. second, second language that like yes. people have. So thank you for bringing that up. So as Lisa mentioned, the AZA is the accrediting body for zoos and aquariums across the country. And the AZA was founded back in 1924, but they didn't actually introduce their accreditation standards until the 1970s. And as a little bit of context, back in the 60s and 70s, zoos, especially city-run zoos, had begun to fall into disrepair and look really run down due to a lack of attention and money being provided to them, which led to a lack of advancements in animal care. And so the AZA introduces their accreditation standards as a guide for zoos to say, hey, this is what the best possible zoo should have for its animals. And it's really taking a look at what exhibit quality and veterinary care and nutrition and enrichment and husbandry and providing really a holistic guide for zoos to see what they need to provide the best possible quality care for their animals, which is so important. And the accreditation standards are constantly evolving. So each year they're updated and they've since been updated to include education and conservation and community involvement, which is really, really important. These are all super key factors in what makes a zoo a zoo. So it's really amazing that the accreditation standards continue to evolve. Yeah, and one big aspect that AZA has really been leading the zoo and aquarium world on, as well as, like you said, education, conservation, husbandry, well-being, is also DEAI initiatives, so diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And that is something that the zoo world did not really see very much of, and especially with even within staff and within leadership. And so prioritizing that and really taking a hard look at where DEAI stands within AZA, within their member institutions, and really prioritizing that has been, had a one amazing trickle effect, trickle down effect, I think, between AZA and then all of their member institutions. And it's something that our zoo has prioritized for quite some time and then helped having AZA backing up the formalization of a committee and subcommittees and things like that to make sure we're really prioritizing this both with our guests, our staff, and bringing it to the forefront more than it's literally ever been. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that including DEAI initiatives in the accreditation standards and within individual facilities is just so, so important and such a great step in the right direction. I know that we still have a really long way to go on this journey, but I think that the steps that we've taken are really exciting. And I know that for historically excluded groups, we're starting to provide more opportunities for mentorships and paid internships, which is really, really cool. And there's been a lot of really great work from folks at Miazis, the Minorities in Aquarium and Zoological Sciences, as well as AMZAP, the Association of Minority Zoo and Aquarium Professionals. And the work that those folks are doing, as well as people on the Diversity Committee at AZA, is just really, really cool. And it's so exciting to see that passion and that drive. And personally, I'm just so excited to see what this will look like in the next 10 or 20 years, even though we still have such a long way to go. It's still so, so exciting. Yes, absolutely. And another shift that we started to see in the 80s and 90s was that zoos were starting to get more involved in a lot of conservation and science-based projects. And a really great example of this is the California condor. So back in the 80s, the California condor was facing critically low numbers, and it was even worried that they might go extinct. So the San Diego Zoo brought the remaining population into their zoo and began to start a captive breeding program. And the program was super successful, and they were able to reintroduce the condor into the wild and create a sustaining population and even share that breeding program with other zoos. 
And I just think that's such a great example of how important those collaborations between zoos are and the really great results they can bring. The California condor is such a great example. And I've had the pleasure of actually seeing a tagged condor in the Grand Canyon oh, some wow. years back. And I just like mind blown all of the these things like all of these things coming together at once it was very emotional but it was very cool and what is great about the conservation work that goes on is that we have those types of programs where like literally populations still exist today because of zoos pulling together working with in the california condor example with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and you know government authorities and but the AZA also being able to say and recognize that you know we can't even with 200 plus zoo and aquarium members, you know, all these staff, all these dedicated people and the funds, you know, the millions and millions and millions that go into conservation, we still don't have the capacity to do all of this just as the ADA. And so with the SAFE program, the Saving Animals from Extinction, another acronym, the SAFE program, what they do is they are able to identify organizations and partners all over the world that are doing the work. They're doing the conservation work. They're doing what needs to be done in communities, communities leading this work, communities starting this work all over the world. And AZA and institutions and SAFE programs are able to say, that's amazing. You're already doing it. How can we help? Can we help? Would you like our help? How can we support? Instead of us going in and saying, well, and starting something completely new or coming in and doing something separate. And so the SAFE program is such a great model about that. And we're going to hear uh, from one of the Bear SAFE programs in a later episode. So we'll look, be able to dive more into just what SAFE really, all the intricacies there, but just why it can be a really impactful program. Yeah, I think that community-based conservation is a, one of those, again, one of those really, really exciting shifts that we've seen in the zoological community. And so it's really, really great being able to have SAFE as a vehicle for that, being able to drive those efforts forward and really take the time to listen to those communities and hear what they want and let them kind of lead and us follow and just provide the resources and support and whatever they need from us, which is really amazing. And touching back on collaborations between zoos to zoos, I think that a really great one between the St. Louis Zoo and Roger Williams Park Zoo in Rhode Island is the American Burying Beetle Breeding Program. And so American burying beetles are a type of carrion beetle, and I believe they're on the endangered list still, but zoos have been doing a lot of really, really great work since the 80s and 90s on breeding and releasing them. And Roger Williams was one of the first zoos to do it, but that effort has since expanded to the St. Louis Zoo, Cincinnati Zoo, Columbus, really a lot of different zoos throughout the Midwest. And so we have these two distinct East and Midwestern populations, but there's a lot of collaboration and communication in terms of husbandry and breeding and what works best for reintroduction. So it's really exciting to see those efforts being worked on together, even if they are technically two different populations and two different operations going on with different zoos. Yes, sharing best practices is what it is all about. And no, you know, it's (laughs) saying, hey, St. Louis, this is how we did it. And it worked really well. So give it a shot, you know, being able to do that and just having that, again, like that collaboration, those relationships, those common goals that Mm -hmm. us as zoos and aquariums can identify so that we can have a bigger impact and make the most of our conservation efforts as possible. Absolutely. And the AZA is currently comprised of 238 different facilities. And that number spans 45 states and 13 countries. And then it includes zoos and aquariums, museums and safari parks and nature centers. And I just think it's so, so cool that there are so many different facilities across different cultures and continents and countries 
who all really want to be together in this group to help advance animal care and conservation. And back in the 80s, when the AZA first made accreditation standards a requirement to be a member, they saw about a 75% drop in membership. And it's just so, so amazing that we went from that now to having over 200 facilities being a part of the AZA. And it's really inspiring, too, knowing that all of these facilities want to be able to advance animal care and provide the best quality care for the animals in their collections. I think it's just really amazing and super inspiring. Oh, yeah. It's it really is something. And like you said, it's it had growing pains and mm-hmm. it really you know had to figure out what this was going to look like and what made sense. And now, you know, the support that AZA provides to institutions that do want to be accredited, do want to figure out how to make this work is just really it's a testament to the commitment to having this really robust group of institutions, zoological institutions, aquariums that have these standards and help guests and people that really love animals could just kind of know what they're supporting. You know, when they go there, when you see that ADA uh, logo, when Mm -hmm. you see that, you know that you're supporting a zoo or aquarium that has those high standards. And that's, that's really important to people who want to responsibly visit areas or institutions that have animals and show animals and teach people about animals. Yeah, I think that having the AZA as that central hub for the zoo community, and like you said, those high standards is really important for the members of the zoo community themselves, but also for members of the public who might not know as much about zoos as people who are within the field. And just being able to use that as kind of a flag to show that best practices for animal well-being and conservation and education are being practiced there is super important. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the different services that they provide and a lot of the things that we're going to be getting into, right? Like we're going to be talking about what a tag actually is. So we have the bear tag, which is a taxon advisory group. So we're going to dive into what that is and how that falls under AZA Mm -hmm. and as well as the species survival plans or SSPs. We'll learn all about those. We've already talked about the safe program and how we're going to see, learn more about a bear safe program that is already underway. And then there's just so much that it provides to members. So we talk about, we keep talking about these standards for animal well-being and animal care. But there's so much professional development and the mm-hmm. conferences and the places for and the time and the resources that are put into bringing professionals together, I think is really something very unique and something very awesome that they're able to do. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think that this community that the AZA has fostered in terms of the animal programs and education and professional development is just really, really amazing. And I know that with the conferences, there are so many people there and everybody knows each other and is excited to see each other. And if you're new to it, they're so, so happy to welcome you into the fold and really just be a part of that AZA community together. You know, like the joy and excitement that you can feel there is really tangible. And I know that every field does such important work and is so proud of what they do. But I just think that the AZA community is really, really special. The amount of passion and joy that we put into our work every day is really, really incredible. And I think that, you know, there's just no other community that I would want to be a part of. So I'm so, so grateful that I get to be a part of it. And I'm really excited to be exploring it with you, Lisa, through the lens of bears. Yeah, it's so exciting to always talk about and to dive into, like you said, that passion, it just runs throughout. And mm-hmm. we, you and I are both very passionate people, both about 
species and bears, as well as education and connecting people to animals. And so, yeah, I think the rest of the episodes when we have our special guests join us, I think it's just going to, yeah, carry that on through throughout the whole season. I'm really excited to be able to dive deeper into all of that with you and just being able to hear from our guests who have such a wide variety of backgrounds and perspectives and how they got into the zoo field themselves. It's going to be really great to be able to hear from them and learn about what they do and how it all kind of relates to bears and the greater mission of zoos as a whole. I'm ready. Me too. Gonna be good. (laughs) Yes. Very, very excited for it. I think we've covered everything that we need to cover for today, but Lisa, I am so, so excited to be going on this journey with you for the next several episodes. And I'm so, so excited for our listeners to be able to hear all of it. And really, I think it's just going to be a really great learning experience for all of us. So I'm really looking forward to it. I agree. I I know we're going to learn a lot more than we ever thought we could. And I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for our listeners to have their minds blown about all things fair. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So thank you to all of you out there who took the time to listen to this podcast today. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to stay updated to the podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to keep up with us on social media, you can follow us at AZA Bear Tag on Instagram or as Bear Tag on Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Bear Tag, you can visit us online at beartag.org. And if you have any questions, you can email us at azabeartag at gmail.com. Also, we have to give a special shout out to the Lintones for creating our amazing theme song and outro music. Thank you so, so much. They're the staff band at the St. Louis Zoo, and they just did such an incredible job with it. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.